Welcome to our noon webinar. I'm Dr. Jill Brooks from First Healthcare Compliance. We are so pleased to have Shauna Itree today joining us, an attorney with Berger and Montague from Philadelphia. She will be discussing the False Claims Act, focusing on whistleblower actions in healthcare. Shauna? Hi. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you for uh, calling in, logging in. Thank you, Dr. Brooks, for the invitation to speak and for the introduction. Um, the first slide is just an introduction slide. It has my contact information, my email, my phone number, and uh, my LinkedIn address. So please uh, feel free to use them if you have any questions either during or after the presentation. The last slide will also contain the same contact information. Um, so today what we're going to talk about is we're going to give an overview of the whistleblower statutes. Uh, we're going to focus primarily and probably 99% on the False Claims Act, uh, federal and state False Claims Act, which are very similar. Um, and then there's other whistleblower statutes that could possibly apply in healthcare, but not likely, um, the IRS whistleblower statute and the SEC whistleblower statute. Um, so the False Claims Act. Um, it is uh, a statute that was enacted um, during the Civil War by, by Abraham Lincoln, and um, it was to protect the Union Army. They were getting sold um, shoddy products by contractors, so um, Abraham Lincoln had enacted a statute to um, incentivize people to come forward um, if they had any knowledge that uh, faulty or shoddy products were being provided to the government. Um, and it's a unique mechanism that allows citizens with evidence of fraud against the government programs to sue on behalf of the government to recover the fraud or to recover the, the stolen funds. Um, we're going to be going into, um, I'm not going to focus on you know, the legalese, I will mention it briefly, um, but we're going to be talking about the statute, um, the procedural aspects of the statute, and I'm going to be giving you some examples of cases. Um, and one of a, a unique, the key TAM provision of the False Claims Act allow uh, whistleblowers, or what they call them as relators, to be awarded a portion of the funds that is recovered by the government. So whistleblowers and relators are incentivized to come forward with the fraud. Why is this relevant to healthcare? Um, under the False Claims Act, only money that can be recovered is government money. So Whenever there are government funds, there's a potential False Claims Act liability. And the reason why it's so prevalent in healthcare is because of the amount of money the government spends on the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Um, some simple stats here for you is that um, the total Medicare expenditures in 2011 was about $557.8 billion. Um, and um, total Medicaid expenditures in fiscal year 2011 and state fortune for $428.7 billion. Um, it's estimated or projected that by 2021, Medicaid spending is to account for over 20% of the GDP. So it is, there's a lot of government money going into healthcare and a lot of False Claims Act. I would say about, in my practice, probably about 80% of um, False Claims Act cases are healthcare cases. Uh, the general success of the False Claims Act law. Um, over $40 billion have been recovered for the government uh, in the past 26 years. 
Again, about 80% of these recoveries concern healthcare. Uh, with the Affordable Care Act, um, we think that this is going to continue to increase. Um, the other types of government fraud involves military defense, um, oil and gas, construction, foreign aid, and mortgage. But again, primarily healthcare fraud. Um, so just to give you kind of a basic outline of uh, filing a False Claims Act case. Um, typically, almost always, the company gets the first bite, meaning that someone within the company will notice that something fraudulent is occurring or something that they're not comfortable with, and they'll talk to the company about it. Um, sometimes, if it's the company, you know, will fix it. Um, maybe they have a compliance officer that gets involved, and they'll fix it. But a lot of times, and I'm biased, obviously, because I do these cases all the time, but a lot of times, um, the company doesn't fix it. Um, they either don't fix it and ignore the problem, or the um, whistleblower or the employee uh, gets retaliated against. Either you know they're harassed or, or fired or laid off. Um, the whistleblower then either goes to the government with the information, or they go to a false claims act attorney. Um, this is what I do primarily. That's you know right now it's 100% of my casework. I've been doing it for almost 10 years, um, and we have a lot of people that come forward with to us. Um, because their company uh, retaliated against them for reporting fraud or because they just really, a lot of times, they feel really uncomfortable doing it and they don't want to be in trouble. So they talk to us. Um, we then investigate the case um, and I'll go into a little bit deeper of, you know, kind of some of the things that we look for in cases or what the whistleblower needs to bring forward. Uh, if we think it's worth bringing a case, um, we'll file a complaint. And we work on, and a lot of whistleblower attorneys work on a contingency fee basis. So we wouldn't bring a frivolous action. We would make sure that we thought that this was going to fly. Um, the case is then filed under seal. Um, the seal is very important for the False Claims Act. It is supposed to protect the government investigation. So what we do is we file a case, we put it in an envelope, we file it by hand with the court. The only uh, people that see or know of the complaint are obviously the court, us, the whistleblower, and the government. Because after we file the case under seal, we then serve the government with the uh, complaint. And at that time, um, the government begins its investigation. Um, and what they do is they always call in the whistleblower or the relator to meet with the government or the prosecutors. And it's just, it's a meeting. It's you know not a deposition. No one's under oath. They just try to get to know the whistleblower, see if the whistleblower is credible, um, see how much more information they can get from the whistleblower to help um, support their investigation. Uh, and usually there'll be one or two prosecutors, one from the district uh, where the case is filed, and one from DOJ in Washington, D.C. And there's also agents there, um, investigators from the Postal Service, from the FBI, whoever is available, or HHS. Um, representatives are there and um, the, the whistleblower is there with the representation and they discuss the complaint and they discuss you know, what the whistleblower's experience with the company is. After the investigation, which can take a very long time, um, typically these cases, depending on how complicated they are, they last a year, they're investigated for a year, could be investigated up to 10 years. Um, I've had cases like that. Uh, we don't like that. and government prosecutors are trying to um, reduce that amount of investigation. Um, but then the government makes a decision. They either say, hey, you know, we want to we want to intervene in this case. We're gonna, that means that they're going to take it on. It's going to 
will become their case. Um, now, 80% of cases are not intervened. They're declined where the government chooses not to go forward with the case. Um, this can happen for a variety of reasons. Either the government um, didn't do an appropriate investigation, the government may not have resources, or the government may say, hey, we looked into it and we didn't see anything wrong here. Um, and at that point, the intervention decision, the uh, whistleblower and their representation can choose to, uh, if the government declines, they can choose to carry on the case. And the case will become come out from under seal, and it will be litigated like it's litigated a normal case. Uh, discovery will, will commence, um, eventually go to either settlement or trial, um, and then the case will conclude. If the government intervenes, it's always a great thing because, you know, 90% of those cases that are intervened in, they end up being settled um, because it's likely that the government, you know, has done an investigation, has great evidence, and, um, the, com and the government has a lot of power behind it, so the company really usually typically settles, but have been going to trial lately. Um, so if it is successful, if the case is successful, um, it's 5,500 to 11,000 per claim. Now, per claim, it, it depends on the case. Um, usually, it's you know a damage estimation, um, and it's it's really if it's a settlement, it's really you know a negotiation um, with the government and with the defendant. Um, if it goes to trial and um, the whistleblower wins at trial, the damages are automatically tripled. So there's a lot of money involved here. And again, this process, it, it takes several years for this to occur. Uh, once the, the money is recovered, if the case is successful, the whistleblower gets a share of the recovery. Um, again, as I said before, that most cases are not joined by the government. 80% of these cases are declined, and declined cases are typically dropped. Uh, whistleblower attorneys do not usually take them, uh, depending on the reasons they're given by the government. Um, and, but more and more cases are going to trial. We have about four or five cases right now that the government declined in, and we're continuing to go to trial. Um, about 100 to 115 false, case, false claims act cases a year are positively resolved, um, and they take an average of 38 months, but may take a decade. If the government intervenes in the case, then the whistleblower will get 15 to 25 percent of the recovery. Um, which is a big deal because these cases usually settle in the multi-million dollar range. Um, if the government does not intervene and the whistleblower and their attorneys decide to continue to pursue the case, the whistleblower will get 25 to 30 percent of the recovery. Um, the share can be reduced if the whistleblower planned and initiated the fraud. Um, and if the whistleblower is convicted of a crime arising from the fraud, um, they're dismissed from the case and the whistleblower cannot recover anything. Okay, so it's important to figure out who can be a relator or a whistleblower and who can be a defendant. Um, these can be either individuals, they can be business entities, they can be government entities. Um, sometimes we have um, one individual, sometimes we have multiple individuals. Um, they're co-relators or co-whistleblowers and they'll get together because one of them, they worked at the same company, one of them has one piece of information, another one has another piece of information, they decide to split whatever recovery comes. Sometimes we um, have whistleblowers come together and we form a corporation, the corporation sues um, and, and files a complaint on behalf of the government. So it, it's a variety of, of different options of who can be a whistleblower. 
the elements of a False Claims Act case. Um, I'm just going to go over these briefly to give you an idea of what you have to prove. Um, the defendant um, made or caused, the defendant has to make or cause to be made a, a false statement or engaged in a fraudulent course of conduct. Um, acted knowingly. Now, knowingly does not mean actual knowledge. It can be that the defendant had actual knowledge, but it also be, can be that they were deliberately ignorant or they were reckless disregard. Um, the statement or conduct was material, and we'll get into that a little bit later. And it caused, most importantly, it caused the government to pay out money or to forfeit money that was due. Um, so under healthcare fraud, I'm, I'm going to go through some typical examples um, of what we see. Now, the False Claims Act, it's important to know that it's, you know, although it's an old law, it was more recently used, I'd say, in the past 20 years. And so there's all different types of fraud that can be prosecuted. And so our general approach to cases is to think, hey, is, you know, is there something going wrong here? And then we try to see um, if it fits into the statute. But these ones, these examples I'm going to give you are pretty you know, clear-cut examples and examples of cases that have been brought and um, are have been generally successful theories. Um, so the first one is charging for services or supplies that aren't provided. Um, so it's submitting claims to Medicare um, that weren't delivered to a patient. So a patient goes into a, an office um, and, you know, doc, the doctor doesn't perform any services on them, but yeah, charges Medicare or Medicaid for services. Pretty simple. Upcoding is also a pretty simple um, type of case. It's when um, medical procedures and supplies are billed to Medicare or Medicaid um, based upon um, upcoding. So a common fraud is for a provider to provide a service to a patient but to use a different, more expensive code. So um, for example, say someone goes to um, a doctor to have, you know, a toenail removed and the doctor does that and then bills Medicare for, you know, an amputation to be extreme. Um, that's an example of upcoding. Um, there's other types of fraud that are, you know, less, um, uh, like less, more discreet. It's falsifying or failing to maintain records, um, appropriate records. And there's also an off-label marketing by uh, pharmaceutical companies or medical device companies. These cases were very, very big. I'm sure you probably heard of, you know, the Xeroquil, Zyprexa cases, where these cases settled for over a billion dollars. Um, the basic premise is that the FDA, um, there's, you know, approves a drug for a certain indication, and although a doctor is allowed to prescribe the drug, you know, off-label the pharmaceutical companies cannot sell uh, or market the drugs off-label. Um, and those will eventually lead to the submission of false claims. Um, and then the final one that's on this slide is lawful kickbacks or financial arrangements. And these are, you know, stark or anti-kickback uh, violations. And these are also, these are harder cases because they're a little bit more complex. But um, they're very, very common. In fact, I think just yesterday, a uh, Stark case was just settled for about $80 million. <clears throat> so now I'm going to go and talk a little bit and give you more, some more concrete examples of uh, cases brought under the False Claims Act in the healthcare arena. Um, for kickback and Stark cases, um, the last 10 years, there's been more than 100 settlements. Um, and here are some recent settlements uh, below. Um, and under the False Claims Act, uh, you can file any in any state. 
um, about 29 states have enacted their own state false claims acts, um, which basically mirror the federal false claims act. And under the state false claims act, you're able to get Medicaid money. So um, if there's a national scheme, what we typically do is obviously we name it under the federal false claims act because there's Medicare money. Um, but we also, um, if there's a state false claims act, we typically name all the 29 states and the District of Columbia um, to obtain the Medicaid money because if it's a national scheme, it's typically affecting both Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so an example of going back to the kickback and Stark cases, um, here are listed uh, some examples of these cases. Um, providing, um, so to their health care, um, the hospital provided, um, forgave debt that the doctors had and they provided uh, below office, um, below market office space. So um, they gave them basically really cheap rent in order for them to come to the hospital and refer patients to the hospital. Um, at Detroit Medical Center, they also gave leases below fair market value um, and that settled for $30 million. A Christiana Hospital, which is you know, just down the road from where I'm in Philadelphia, just down the road from where I am, um, they made above fair market value payments for the professional component in exchange for referrals. So they just basically overpaying doctors in order to obtain referrals of business. Here's some more examples. I'm not going to go through every one, um, but uh, Tumi Healthcare, $45 million. Um, you can see, you know, they're they're increasing. One interesting one, this McAllen Hospital ones, is they gave sham directorships and bogus lease arrangements. So when you talk about sham directorships, it means you know giving someone a title, uh, a director, and not uh, making them do extra work. It's just an avenue to give them, um, you know, an extra couple hundred thousands of dollars, and you're not allowed to do that under the Stark Law. Um, that's a violation. Um, and this is the one I was just talking about, Halifax Hospital, that um, it was um, intervened in November 2011, actually was about to go to trial, and I think just yesterday or the day before settled uh, for $75 million. So um, these cases, you know, hospitals are fighting them, but they are being, they are successful. Um, these are some of the examples of the uh, pharmaceutical off-label marketing cases, which I, I briefly described earlier. Um, a lot of money here. Um, haven't seen, I mean, this was, you know, back in 2012, these cases were filed very early on. They took years and years to investigate, years and years to prosecute and litigate, and years and years to resolve. Um, and, you know, right now we don't, I mean, these are the biggest cases I've seen, these off-label marketing cases for pharmaceutical drugs. A lot less of these cases are occurring now in the pharmaceutical industry, um, but a lot, of, it's an increase in the medical device industry. As you can see down here, OrthoFix and uh, Blackstone Medical, these are all um, device companies doing off-label marketing. Another type of cases is pharmaceutical pricing cases, um, some Medicaid rebate fraud, uh, spread pricing, these cases are cases I actually had worked on. Um, they, the pharmaceutical company was basically um, paying kickbacks to pharmacies um, to dispense their drugs and um, overcharging the government. So these cases were highly successful, litigated for 10 to 15 years. I think altogether over $3 billion was recovered uh, for the government. Um, I listed here a couple of examples of the next few slides are just some 
you know, examples of off-label cases. I'll probably go through a few of them, but I'm, I see that we're, you know, we're about 20 minutes in, and I want to make sure to get through this whole presentation. So I'm just going to talk about a few of these cases. This is a case against GlaxoSmithKline. It was off-label marketing of the drugs Welbutrin and Paxil. Um, the FDA had approved uh, Welbutrin for the treatment of um, a major depressive disorder. Um, Glaxo, or GSK, they distributed marketing material saying that it could be used for weight loss, it can be used for addiction, it can be used for ADHD, and other types of um, indications. And they also, in addition to that, that would be an off-label marketing claim, but they also paid kickbacks to doctors to prescribe the drug. Um, they also distributed a misleading medical journal that misreported um, the clinical trial of Paxil being effective for children and with depression and for pediatric use. This was not true. It was not effective for these, um, for these uh, symptoms. Um, so what was alleged was that it was fraud on the FDA, uh, that the Glaxo failed to include safety data regarding cardiovascular risks, uh, regarding Avandia, and they had fraudulent price reporting. The case ended up selling for $3 billion, and here um, is a, a list, you know, of how it was broken up. Um, and the, here you see $1 billion, $1 billion was for criminal fines. These cases can also be criminal, these kickback cases. Um, a lot of times you'll know what's criminal is when you, a whistleblower goes in and there's a criminal prosecutor there as well. So they can be uh, uh, prosecuted criminally. You can see the breakdown of off-label marketing, the Avanda drug, uh, price reporting, and also the company GSK was required to enter a five-year uh, corporate integrity agreement, which mandated a certain structure, a reporting structure, and transparency in their research. Um, this is another example of an off-label case of, against J&J. Um, you have the slides. You can take a look at it. It's summarized here. I don't. We're running a little bit short on time, so I don't want to go through all of these. Um, this, this next case, but it's there. Um, again, this is a, another case against Bristol Myers. It ended up um, settling with the states for you know, $389 million, um, reporting inflated prices for prescriptions, drugs, um, paying illegal remuneration or paying kickbacks to physicians and healthcare providers um, to purchase the products, um, and off-label marketing, misreporting sales, et cetera, et cetera. Cephalon, another case. Uh, off-label case, $375 million in damages. Um, this is a, a device company. Um, this case was filed in May of 2007 by a whistleblower, a regional sales manager. Um, th this is a case that the DOJ actually declined in 2009. Um, <clears throat> so what the whistleblower said is that they're paying doctors, um, uh, they're creating these medical advisory board um, and, and paying these doctors through this this manner, and this is a kickback. Um, it was dismissed in 2007 or 2010. It ended up um, settling in for, in 2012 for 30 million dollars. The whistleblower for their um, their actions in this case received 8 million dollars. Um, this case is an interesting case against GSK. It's kind of different than the ones we discussed. Um, it was a case again. It was involving the commercial good. Uh, the good manufacturing practices, and there's a lot of cases about these against uh, companies in India. Um, what, this was a compliance officer or quality insurance manager at, at 
GSK, the whistleblower. She discovered that in their facility in Puerto Rico that they were um, not manufacturing the drugs properly. Um, they were, you know, mixing drugs. Uh, their products were adulterated. Uh, they're violating all these laws. She attempted to um, inform her superiors repeatedly. They repeatedly um, did not listen to her. She wrote a memo and then was fired. She filed this this case. Um, and there was actually 60 minutes about it, I believe. Um, the government um, did not intervene until settlement, and the case ended up settling for $600 million civilly, $100 criminally, and the relator received $96 million. But as you can see, uh, that last bullet point here, it was a six-year investigation, 12,000 hours, and 1.6 million documents. So this was a very involved case, but it ended up being a very successful case. All right. Um, how to spot a false claims act? These goes back into some of the elements. Um, there has to be government money um, involved. It has to be sizable. Um, the defendant must have the ability to pay. This is, you know, a classic uh, a case. When when lawyers are looking at these cases, they're going to say, hey, um, you know, it can't be something that just happens once or twice. Uh, you know, just it can't be a technicality. It has to be a company policy to be doing these types of things. If it's a company policy, then um, you know there'll be another step further. Um, <clears throat> knowledge and evidence. The the whistleblower should have knowledge, um, not just suspicion of fraud. A lot of times we get people coming in here thinking that they saw, you know, taking mental leaps that just you know aren't valid. You have to have some knowledge. You don't have to have actual knowledge. I mean, you know, if, if they're suspicious, we always like to hear about it. But it, it really, in order to file a case, you have to have some knowledge. Um, and they have to be original source. So if someone just can't read a newspaper and file a case, um, they don't, you know, they won't be successful. You have to be an original source of the fraud. Um, the keys to filing a case, there's so many cases that these uh, prosecutors obtain. Um, it needs to be packaged very well. Um, and while the DOJ only joins about 25% of the cases, um, <laughs> the 90 of them are, are settled. So it's important to get the government to intervene. If they don't intervene, it's not, you know, it's not over. But it's really good to have um, the government intervene and to have counsel that has a relationship with the government and has the ability to assist the government investigating and properly package the case. Some potential uh, pitfalls, uh, confidentiality. Um, <clears throat> you know, whistleblowers should not be out there talking about the fraud. There's a first to file provision. Um, if whistleblower A files a complaint uh, against the same company for the same fraud before whistleblower B, whistleblower B will not be able to recover. Um, you have to file an actual lawsuit and submit mandatory and voluntary disclosures to the government in forms of documents. The case must be filed under seal. We talked about this earlier. Um, it's important that um, the whistleblower and their attorneys do not break the seal. Um, it's to protect the government's investigation, and it could result in the whistleblower not obtaining any recovery. Um, legally obtain evidence and facts. Um, uh, when we get a client come in, they're, and they're still part of the company, you can't. We don't advise them, and the client cannot. Um, you know, first of all, give us any sort of privileged information, any sort of information from an attorney, um, and they have to get documents that are in the ordinary course of their business. They can't go out uh, and looking for um, evidence and you know stealing evidence from their boss or going into files where they're not normally in it has to be kind of in their ordinary evidence wouldn't have they would come across in their ordinary course of business 
Um, and you have to be very careful about illegal recordings because in some states um, you can't record somebody unless they have knowledge that you're recording them. Um, <clears throat> there's also criminal liability if they're ma the mastermind or the architect of the fraud. And <clears throat> you have to be careful if a whistleblower <clears throat> is fired that, you know, if they sign a release of claims, then you could potentially um, not be able to file a false claims act suit. Okay, we're about to wrap up here. I just wanted to very briefly mention the IRS whistleblower statute. Um, the False Claims Act specifically exempts tax fraud. However, there is an IRS whistleblower uh, program um, that was created in 2007. And it um, and if there's tax fraud, it allows you to file a, a, a complaint online. Um, it's not like the False Claims Act. It's not a case that's litigated. It just basically sits um, with the IRS and they investigate it. Same as the SEC uh, was a rather new program. Um, it needs to be a fraud over a million dollars. The whistleblower will also receive a war if there's, and this does not have to be government money, so any type of securities fraud. Um, sometimes, you know, in healthcare, there's uh, tippy and tipper liability, there's insider trading, um, and that's generally how it relates to, the, uh, to healthcare. And that's, that will conclude the presentation. Um, Again, if you have any questions, please, my name is Shauna Itchery. I'm a whistleblower attorney. I'm located in Philadelphia. We do, we practice nationwide. We have cases in pretty much every district across the United States. Um, my email address is there. I'm also on LinkedIn, and my phone number is there. So if you have any questions about anything that was said in the presentation or any other questions about the False Claims Act or any of the other whistleblower statutes, please feel free to reach out to me. I am here and I'm available. And thank you so much for your time and logging in. And I hope that this um, presentation has been uh, rewarding in some way. And, and thank you, uh, Dr. Brooks, for, the, for inviting me to speak. Well, thank you, Shauna. And that uh, was very informative. Um, again, uh, Shauna's contact information is on the screen. Um, feel free to contact her with any questions. And if you have any other compliance questions, uh, please contact us at First Healthcare Compliance. 888 Thank you.